Welcome to episode 84 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic, and it's earnings season. AT&T announced its 4Q earnings, and a couple of insights that I pulled from it. Um, both broadband and mobility were up 5% year over year. I found it interesting that AT&T reported nearly 900,000 postpaid phone net ads. So from my perspective, they're continuing to drive the 5G upgrade cycle. I know you're going to talk about um, Apple here on your first topic, but from my perspective, AT&T continues to execute um, against earnings. And um, what I also find interesting with the, the fiber upside is that fiber is a big investment, continues to be a big investment for AT&T. That's going to provide the needed um, backhaul for 5G. And, you know, by all intents and purposes, AT&T continues to execute. Um, I will have likely an update on our next podcast around um, auction 110, the DOD auction. Uh, with some insights with Chris Sambar, an executive that is uh, managing a lot of AT&T's build out there, but would love to get your insights. Yeah, I think when you look at what's going on with AT&T, I think them refocusing on their core business um, has paid dividends. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that the uh, Time Warner um, spinoff will occur sometime this year, from what I recall when I heard about the earnings. Um, so that's going to help them continue to focus on their core business. That said, it is interesting to see that they are starting to move away from a fiber only discussion when it mm -hmm. comes to broadband. Yeah. Um, because for a while they were, they were poo-pooing um, millimeter wave for fixed wireless. Um, but now they're starting to talk a little bit more about fixed wireless. So um, we'll see what happens with that in terms of delivering services. But you know, while they did announce earnings, they also announced their new, um, two and five gigabit fiber plans, which mm -hmm. are pretty interesting because they're pretty competitive in terms of pricing. Yeah. Um, and I think they allow AT&T to make incremental uh, revenue on existing fiber deployments and being able to have, you know, higher average revenue per user, um, but also offer something that a lot of their competitors can't do because they aren't delivering fiber um, they're not investing in it. And, you know, you and I both have AT&T Fiber, so we're yeah. both happy, happy customers. But um, I think the biggest problem for AT&T is really just the footprint of their fiber deployments and, um, you know, being very smart about where they deploy and, and how densely they choose to go. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And John Stanky has been on record, the uh, CEO for AT&T, that fiber will continue to be a strategic investment. And to your point, that benefits both mobility and broadband so that they can get that, that, you know, that recoup on that investment in that, that fiber layout because laying fiber is not in an expensive or trivial uh, effort. But that's a nice segue to your first topic. Now I was talking about net phone ads with AT&T and you want to talk about the iPhone 13 and some news from Apple. Yeah. So Apple published um, gangbuster uh, revenue and profit. Uh, I think they hit record for both. Um, they actually reported iPhone sales of $65 billion for the fourth quarter. Wow. Um, which is up 17% <laughs> year over year. 
That is um, nuts. And a good, almost a 10% higher than Wall Street's expectations. Um, they stopped reporting iPhone unit sales last year, um, but Wall Street still compiles its estimates and um, they're saying that they estimated an ex around 76 million iPhones were sold. Um, and the big deal was that 5G was driving a lot of this. Um, Tim Cook said that globally 5G is a bit of a patchwork quilt in terms of availability and speeds. But the interesting part is, is that um, in the US and China, he said that they see that their network, the 5G network is well established, which I think is a little bit questionable just because you, if you look at what's going on with mid-band is, you know, coverage is there, um, but I think the network experience isn't quite there yet. So I think there is a chance for another wave of 5G upgrades. Mm -hmm. um, but in the US and China, a lot of people uh, were getting iPhone 12s and iPhone 13s and I, I think that when you look at what's happening with the iPhone sales, you know, it's not going to be an Apple unique phenomenon. Um, the interesting was that um, Europe was not very highly, um, highly graded by Tim Cook when he talked about um, the 5G rollout yeah. and that they're just not where the U.S. and China are. Um, and that obviously Korea has a great, you know, coverage, um, which a lot of these things kind of uh, agree with what I was writing in my, uh, my piece that I released last week about the, the state of 5G. So uh, validates a little bit of my beliefs, but overall, you know, I, it's interesting to see Apple's tack when it comes to 5G starting to change, which I also suspect is because next year they're going to be announcing their own modem and mm -hmm. we're going to have to, you know, they're going to market that 5G capability way more than they have in the past. Absolutely. And I'm also not surprised that Apple and Tim Cook were not bullish on Europe. We've spoken about Europe in the past as a region. It's inherently a more complex region. Each country has its own spectrum auctions and regulations and that sort of thing. And the EU is still in the European Commission is still trying to figure out harmonization and that sort of thing as you as you cross border to border. So, and I also believe that in Europe, the focus has really been mostly on access and not necessarily use case. And you're beginning to see more focus on use case in places like China and the US and in Korea. We've spoken about um, South Korea as being a real leader with respect to leading with, with 5G use case versus access. So all of that, you know, ladders up and marries up to what you were commenting on in your Forbes article, which if our viewers and listeners haven't read that article on Forbes, highly recommend you do it. Anshul did a great job really going in depth on sort of the state of 5G. But let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about some news out of France. Sigfox, who is an IoT solution provider, declared they, that they had to go into receivership. So this is, uh, this is not a good thing. You know, it's not a surprise to a lot of analysts, including myself. Sigfox built a purpose-built network, really focused on narrowband IoT to complete, compete with technologies like LoRaWAN. And, you know, at the end of the day, they couldn't find a way to, you know, to truly monetize it. So my, my question is, does this herald the opportunity for 5G to pick up the IoT slack? And so I certainly think it can. 5G inherently based on a 3GPP standard, 
can support a massive increase in the number of devices over LTE and certainly can support both massive, you know, higher bandwidth IoT as well as narrow band IoT. So one, one solution now goes away. Um, I still believe there'll be an opportunity for LoRaWAN and some tech that does a lot of the silicon design in LoRaWAN sensor devices and solutions to exist. But certainly I believe this opens up the opportunity for, for 5G to kind of you know, pick up the slack, but would love to get your insight. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually going to ask you if you thought LoRaWAN had a, had a better chance. I um, think it does now. I, I, I think, you know, Simtech's got solid technology. I've been on the record saying that. I do believe the LoRaWAN Alliance could be doing more and, and be more strategic to drive the ecosystem. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, we have an IoT generalist, uh, Bill Curtis, uh, at the firm. That would probably concur with my conclusion there. But, yeah. Yeah, I, w I also was thinking about how the cost of cellular has come down, mm -hmm. um, especially on the IoT space. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to eventually be hard to beat when it when it really hits scale. Um, so we'll see what happens down the road. But you know, it's never good to hear when a company you know goes into bankruptcy. And we'll see what happens with, with the the IP and technology. Agreed, and I agree with you as well. Competition breeds typically innovation and price competitiveness. So I'm not dancing on Sigfox's grave. I mean, there is an opportunity and a possibility that uh, they may not go away completely, that they could be picked up by another company that wants to invest in them, but time will tell. But let's move to your second topic this week. And this has been big news. It's been a on and off battle you know, around the world for NVIDIA and ARM, but you wanted to give an update on where things stand. Yeah, so basically, um, there have been a lot of rumors that um, the NVIDIA merger with ARM, well, it's more of an acquisition than anything, right. um, is slowly uh, kind of drifting into the abyss um, because, you know, this deal was announced in September of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, we're already more than a year out. Almost, we're, we're probably coming up on a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. um, and it just doesn't look good for NVIDIA. Um, and the thing is, is that I think the real big stumbling block in my mind was always going to be the UK um, because ARM is, you know, their home turf um, and it's their, one of their last left chip makers. Um, so they were going to be very, um, you know, they're going to be very critical of that deal. But the real surprise was the US FTC, which I believe was a consequence of the election and, you know, Biden putting in a more aggressive person in charge of the FTC. So we're going to see what happens, but most likely uh, it's going to die. And lots of the rumors say that NVIDIA, you know, is, is, is already spinning up its own custom chip design capabilities in Israel mm -hmm. um, as a hedge to this. So in addition to that, uh, they're also working on um, making an IPO for ARM, which uh, I think at one point ARM was a public company. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, one of NVIDIA's biggest criticisms of uh, a criticism of this deal was that if they went public, if ARM went public, they would be less of an innovative company and they wouldn't have as much ability to invest in the future. Yeah. But um, I'm not really sure if that's 
are necessarily the truth, but I, I could see that possibly being true, but they were already a public company. So um, at this point, I think we just got to let things shake out. But the truth is, is that once SoftBank put ARM up for sale and the top bidder was NVIDIA, um, Pandora's box was opened and now Risk Five has has a lot of interest. That said, it's still in the very early stages and I think it'll still be quite some time until Risk Five becomes a competitor to ARM and in, in the same vein that um, ARM is capable of today. I agree. You know, and I also agree with your assessment that the FTC is likely the, the nail in the coffin here. And I'm not surprised because a lot of the recent, you know, news flowing from, you know, the Biden administration is around how to control inflation by increasing competitiveness. And I think some of it is misguided with respect to the belief that, you know, grocery stores are monopolies, which I don't believe they are. They operate on low margins and we're not going to, we never get political on, on these, these uh, podcasts, but I think, you know, it was just the climate, the administration is like keenly focused on improving competitiveness and they viewed this as anti-competitive. So it's likely the nail in the coffin, but as you were saying, you know, there, there's never, there's never ever, you know, you know, finality until, you know, the dance stops. So we will definitely keep our eyes and ears open on this one and report back as things develop. But finally, I want to cover my third topic uh, this week, and it's around Ericsson's 4Q earnings performance. And the question is, is enterprise sort of the next big 5G push for uh, the infrastructure giant? And certainly their CEO says it is. And I've spoken about, you know, their acquisition of Cradle Point. There hasn't been a lot of visibility around how Ericsson is going to leverage Cradle Point into the enterprise, but it's quite clear Cradle Point has uh, got a solid install base and um, they have products that are quite mature. You could argue uh, they have a lead in some respects with respect to some of the, the on-go CBRS designs that will power private networks within the enterprise. But I was especially impressed with Ericsson's earnings. And so just at a high level for 4Q, they reported a net profit of over a billion dollars, US dollars, which represents a 41% increase year over year. I mean, that is huge. And what I also find interesting as their, their CEO spoke to 2022 and noted that they felt Ericsson had opportunities with densification. You and I have talked about that. There's gonna be a need for densification, especially with uh, C-band spectrum assets, but, uh, the CEO also spoke to, you know, opportunities with mid-band deployments in 5G. And so you know, I think you alluded to that, I think, earlier. When you look at, you know, what's primarily been deployed today, it's been, it's either been millimeter wave, which has been Verizon's focus, or it's been low band in many parts of the world. In the U.S., again, T-Mobile really has the only complete deployment of, you know, low mid and, you know, they're getting into high band as well. But that, that certainly is an opportunity. And certainly as Verizon and AT&T as an example in the U.S. begin to deploy their C-band and eventually deploy their assets from auction 110, which I plan to talk about in more detail next week when that quiet period lists with the FCC. It seems like Ericsson has a lot of opportunity in front of it, but would love to get your insights. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think the um, the enterprise opportunity is huge. 
And I don't think it's going to be realized until coverage gets to a point where it's ubiquitous from mid-band. Mm-hmm. Because low-band is great, but the real use cases are going to be in standalone, and they're going to be mid-band. And I think I called this months ago now that I think Verizon and AT&T are delaying their standalone deployments until they have enough mid-band coverage. Yeah, so that would make sense. Yeah. I think that we're at this point that enterprise use cases are going to be most likely to happen when coverage and standalone are both at a, at a reasonable point. So mm-hmm. I think we're definitely some time away from that, especially when you look at Verizon and AT&T. So I, and also we've been talking about this for months now, but densification is going to be a thing. Um, neither AT&T nor Verizon's networks are built dense enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and AT&T has been very straightforward about the in- increase in investment that it's going to have to make. Um, but I think that fiber deployment will also help it amortize those costs. Uh, nonetheless, Verizon still has to really come public with what they plan on doing. But um, I just think that we're going to see AT&T ramp pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wonder about Verizon, especially with their, um, with their roadmap showing that they're, you know, they're basically going to be in last place when yeah. it comes to covering on mid-band uh, by 2023. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting for, for Ericsson especially. Yeah. And yeah, totally agree. Spot on assessment there. Verizon is definitely in third place here. They're going to have the, the biggest uphill battle with respect to densification. I think I've mentioned this on other podcasts that as I've spoken with AT&T executives, they feel like they have enough capacity that's dark right now that they can, they can light that up. And, um, and that will help buffet some of what they have to do from a densification perspective. Well, I, I keep wanting to get into the 110 auction and we will next, next week, but, but I can share this, it's public information. The spectrum profile is much better from a propagation perspective than C-band. And, um, and so, you know, again, I'll be sharing more details on, on what, what AT&T's position is there. But I think what we'll see at the, at the end of the, the day when the dust settles on 110 is that um, AT&T is going to come out, you know, looking like a winner. And that, that's going to equate to a lower CapEx, you know, investment in densification. But with that said, I, you know, again, we'll come back to that next week. But your third and final topic. Maybe this is the final final on the FAA, you know, FCC, you know, so. <laughs> but, but, but you want to provide an update and, you know, there are going to be some hearings apparently in, in DC and you have a very revealing statistic that the FCC or the FAA has already shared, right? Yeah. So the FAA, I believe this was actually scheduled back in October, which is funny considering everything that happened. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yes. I thought it was an emergency like meeting that was called, but no, I didn't no, no. this was uh, it's almost like they saw that this disaster was coming. <laughs> um, so uh, the FAA administrator Steve Dickinson, sorry, Steve Dixon, uh, w- along with aviation and wireless industry officials, will be speaking with Congress at hearing. Uh, basically talking about the 5G impact on aviation safety. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a lot of people asking a lot of questions about 
why this happened, how Pop it got popcorn. to this point. Pop your popcorn. It's going to be like the Facebook hearings a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's interesting is, is that I think yesterday the FAA came out with a statement saying that 90% of aircraft have compliant um, altimeters. Yeah. So we're already talking about less than 10% or somewhere under 10% of airplanes that might not be compliant. And we, we're still finding out what that number will be. So, and it keeps inching up, right? It started at 48, then went right. to 62 or 65. Now we're at 90. That's 90. Yeah. And, and, and it's uh, January 25th. So, and it feels like they didn't really start this until about a month ago. So <laughs> the whole situation is kind of a disaster. It's very frustrating. I think we all can agree on that. Yeah. Um, but we will see what happens with the end result, as in what will have to be done at airports. Um, Verizon has already agreed not to turn on a bunch of sites around airports, but that only represents less than 10% of their planned deployment. Right. Um, so we'll see what happens long term. But I think this is probably going to take another year to actually shake out. Um, but I think it would be really great to hear from the FAA why things happened the way they did. And my biggest question is why they sat on this report that obviously supported their point of view. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was reading some some um, threads online uh, about what was happening. And some people were saying that, like, there was a disagreement and it, there wasn't really anybody to um, mitigate this disagreement because... Uh, the NTIA is supposed to be the agency that ensures federal spectrum policy is unified. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just interesting to see that there was a very big breakdown of regulatory um, behavior. And ultimately, there should have been money allocated aside during this auction yeah. to alleviate concerns. Right. And to allow people to make upgrades where they were necessary. But I ultimately believe that the FAA did this because they didn't get the money that they wanted. Um, mm -hmm. Because it doesn't make sense why they would sit on this for over a year and then suddenly make a big stink about it right before. So yeah. um, it's either incompetence or it's greed. I'm not sure which it is, but it's one of the two. And we're hopefully going to find out during this hearing. Yeah. And I don't buy the fact that it was an administration transition. I mean, and obviously we had pie with the FCC, you know, exit when, when you know, Biden was elected and we have a new chairwoman uh, that's heading the FCC. And, you know, now we have, you know, Mayor, Senator, Secretary Pete, uh, who's the new Secretary of Transportation. The FAA falls underneath that. I, I don't, I don't buy that that it was a, you know, sort of an administration transition. Well, I expect that we're going to hear that. Yeah. Most of the people who work in the FAA didn't change. It's mostly it's, like the top echelon right. of, of the, you know, administration. And if certain things weren't put into place before the transition, you know, there's no reason why they would have been afterwards. So somebody yeah. failed to do their job. Yeah. And I hope we find out who it was. Yeah, and I hope someone loses their job. <laughs> so, well, maybe they already lost it. <laughs> probably. Well, with that said, buddy, it was another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Welltown Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. 
We hope you have a great weekend and please tune again next week.